seat. Thank you so much. Well, the title of this morning's message is An Unstoppable Message. As you know, we've been working through this series called A Mission-Focused Church, and we are in Acts chapter 1. And as you think about this, you know, there are many church gurus today who have opinions about how to grow Jesus' church even in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. There are many who have opinions about how to grow numerically even our churches. Some say that we need more attractive programs, that we need to be seeking advice from others who are running wonderful, innovative programs and methods of church growth, that we need to access those like um, some of these popular preachers on television who are growing in the thousands, it seems, in terms of their churches. We need to seek their advice in these mega churches as to how they did that and they accomplished that. Others think that we need to enlist other nonprofit entities who do a better job of leading Bible studies and doing fellowship and all of that. And we need to go outside of the local church and seek nonprofit evangelical entities who do a better job so that we might grow Jesus' church, that we really need help from these other entities. That, you know, we need more well packaged products to offer the church so that we might grow numerically as well. These are some of the ideas from church gurus and people who give opinions about what it would be like for us to grow our churches. We need to seek these people out. And obviously, you understand this as you read God's Word and if you've been tuning into our series, that the way that God birthed His church, even in the book of Acts, and the way that the true church has always grown and grows even in the present has never changed, brethren. It's never changed. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, there are these amazing progress reports that we are given about how the church is doing in the book of Acts as its birth, and then it continues to grow. Just look with me in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. You're already there in Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And take note of these passages with me. These progress reports. Acts 6 and verse 7. The Word of God kept on spreading... And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Did you note that? It's the Word of God that kept on spreading. Look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 24 with me. We're just looking at a sampling of these. Acts 12, 24. But the Word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. It's the Word that is growing. It's the Word that is being multiplied in the hearts of people here in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 with me. It says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the Word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. Mark it. What is growing? The Word of the Lord. Fast forward to Acts chapter 19 and verse 20 with me. Acts 19 and verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Finally, by the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, we find Paul in jail. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 31, it says that this man, Paul, in jail, incarcerated on house arrest, 
was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the Word of God, isn't he? Paul understood that even though he himself was incarcerated, limited, the great Apostle Paul, Paul knew that the Word of God would never be incarcerated. That he needed to continue to let the lion loose the Word of God and let it have its work in the hearts of people or do its work in the hearts of people. All of those progress reports and others convey to us, brethren, this reality that the Word of God is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. No matter what the time uh, we live in or the culture says. Don't fool yourself into thinking, well, there are not many people coming to know Jesus. Yes, there are. All over the world. But Jesus Himself said, narrow is the way. Didn't He? Jesus said it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few are those who find it. But broad, it's like a freeway. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are on that path. Jesus said it Himself. Few, narrow is the way. But there are many people coming to know Christ. We're flat out wrong when we think that we as Christians are the ones in the weak position here in the midst of this wicked and perverse culture. When it's actually the world that's in the weak position. God's Word will not return void, brethren. God's Word is unstoppable. In fact, even unbelief in people's lives in response to the Word is the Word bearing fruit, isn't it? Because the Word of God will either harden people as they do not respond in obedience to the truth, or it will soften hearts and people will come to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. So there is great fruitfulness with regards to the unstoppable Word of God. And in essence, as we think about Acts chapter 1, letting this Word loose is what Jesus calls His disciples to do here in these particular verses. We've been seeing that this passage records the final days and the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words were obviously applicable to uh, His apostles and His early followers who are there present as they hear these words, of course, the Great Commission. But by extension, these words here are also applicable to His church then and now. We have taken the baton now from other followers of Christ and from Jesus Himself ultimately to be those who proclaim Christ to the world. And as we've said, these parting words by Jesus are those things that upon His departure were dearest to His heart. These were important words. These things that He wants His church to be focused upon, upon the culmination of all things or until the culmination of all things. We've already seen from this passage that the early church, captivated by a compelling Christ, was catapulted to fulfill Christ's mission on earth. But far from an independent or isolated endeavor, His church was to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. The promised person and work of the Holy Spirit is to be the one who empowers us to fulfill Christ's mission. We dare not do this work on our own. Amen? We need the Spirit of God, brethren. I need the Spirit of God. You do as well to be able to do God's work. Spiritual work requires spiritual power. The Spirit of God with a capital S is able to give us that power. And so note, we have the unwavering conviction of Christ, His person and His work. We have the unrivaled power to accomplish His mission, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God. And today, I want to be reminded of the unstoppable message that we've been given to proclaim as mission-focused Christians and as a mission 
focused church. We have an unstoppable message, brethren. And I want us to grow in our confidence and hopefully this is faith strengthening for you. And that this will catapult you all the more during the week to be about proclaiming Christ and living out the implications of being in Christ. Now, if we're going to be focused on proclaiming this unstoppable message, there are two things really required of us if you're taking notes. First, as you're taking notes here, you must know your mandate. If you're going to be about the mission of Christ, you must know your mandate. And it's important that we begin here to not assume anything. May I ask you this morning, do you know, as a follower of Christ, what your mandate is? Do you know? And are you convinced about what Christ has called you to do if you are a follower of His? If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not put your confidence and trust in Him, if you are not a Christian, this whole series has been irrelevant to you. But people who love Christ love what Jesus loves. People who care about Christ care about what Jesus cares about. People who follow after Jesus want to promote what Jesus is about. So if you're a believer, this is a very pertinent question for you. And the reason why I ask this, if you know your mandate, is because for too many Christians, the great commission, brethren, has become the great omission. When push comes to shove, people are not sharing Christ with anyone. Life, even for some professing believers, is about many things, but it's not about proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. That is not what you center your life on. And this could be especially true, listen to me, in healthy, conservative, gospel-preaching churches such as ours. Where the focus, it would be very easy for us to focus only on personal growth, which is where it begins, but that should then catapult us onto a life of mission. Amen? We don't just come here to sort of grow in our, in our heads with knowledge. And that knowledge doesn't impact and move our heart affections so that then it moves our actions so that we are about proclaiming and living Christ out before a lost world. Oh no. We want to live out the truth of Christ. And so it's very easy, even in conservative gospel preaching churches, to only focus on personal growth. And there's no evangelistic output there's no intentionality about gospel witness and about gospel conversations beginning with your home or your neighborhood or coworkers or people that you come across in sporting events or whatever. Life becomes about those things in and of themselves rather than those be things being means by which you establish relationships and, con and have conversations about Christ with those individuals. Very easy for us to do that, even as a conservative gospel-preaching church. We can become quite comfortable with one another, brethren. We can dangerously adopt a, a subtle us-for-no-more mentality. And we have to be very careful with that. That's very dangerous. A great commission church is a next-generation church. Did you hear that? A great commission church is not an us-for-no-more church. A Great Commission church that is about the mission of Jesus is about having sanctified cliques where we want others to come in amongst us and assimilate into the life of the body. Amen? We must be guarding ourselves from dangerously adopting an us-for-no-more mentality. 
This can happen even imperceptibly. Unintentionally. We don't mean that. But eventually we sort of become cold. We become indifferent. Even pessimistic, some of us, about our mission field. Leading to lethargy and passivity rather than proactiveness and purposefulness and deliberateness in terms of the way that we share Christ with other people. And we pursue relationships with them for the sake of the Gospel. But if that is you today, in any of these categories, I want to remind you that the mandate for us to make disciples is not optional. It's not optional. It's a command. We are under orders, brethren. We are under orders. Look at this with me. Christ commanded us to share and proclaim the Gospel. Look at verse 1. We've read this before. But take note, the first account I composed Theophilus, Luke writes, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven, that is, until the day He ascended. But then watch this. After He had, by the Holy Spirit, given what? Say it with me. Given commands or orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. Circle that in your Bible. Given orders. Given commands. That language of given orders is synonymous with commanding them. Boy, that's a far from a, the wimpy Jesus of our popular culture. Amen? Hey, this is a Jesus with fullness of authority. Ordering. Commanding us to be about this. Beginning with His apostles at the time. He's got quite the authority. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. Gathering together, He what? He what, brethren? He commanded or ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Again, ordering, commanding. Listen to me. Jesus is boss. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is boss. He's got all the authority. Look at with me in verse 7. He said to them, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses. You shall be My witnesses. Shall be. That's a future tense verb with the force of an imperative. With the force of a command. Shall be. You know the Great Commission in Matthew 28? What does Jesus say? People often focus on the make disciples part, right? The, the command to make disciples. But before that, it says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Remember that part? All authority. Therefore, go make disciples. He has all authority. Sometimes we go share Christ with people fearful. As if we're in the weak position. As if they are in authority. As if the world's in control. Listen to me. Jesus has all authority. He's ordered us. He's commanded us. He's boss. Do you know your mandate from Christ? Man, Pastor Kempis, why are you belaboring this? I'll tell you to make the point that the Great Commission, brethren, is not optional, beloved. It's not optional. Some of us live that way. We wouldn't articulate it that way. But we live that way. We are under divine orders. You know, I'm so thankful for those of you who served in our armed forces. Got a chance to interact with some of you over the past few weeks and thanking you for your service as well. You of all people understand this concept of orders. When you are given orders in the military, what do you do? Well, general, I don't know. I don't know if, if I need to do that. Sergeant, I, I don't 
don't know. Let me, let me, let me pray about it. <laughs> let me see if that's what you want me to, that's what really God wants me to do. Is that the way that soldiers respond? Uh-uh. You're out of there, right, if you do that. No. When you are in the military, there's an order that comes in. You follow it because lives depend on it. You follow it. We understand that in different contexts. Job environment, right? Education, school, etc. We understand what it means to follow orders. Now transfer that to the spiritual realm. Upon Jesus ascending to heaven, the ultimate general with a capital G of his Christian army gave orders. He gave commands and they are to be followed. Listen to me because souls depend upon it. Well, I don't know about that. You know, God is sovereign. He will save whom He will save. Okay, hyper-Calvinist. That's what I say to that. Because I've had young men tell me things like that 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 we've invested into. Hyper-Calvinism? No, no, no. God is sovereign, absolutely. Preach it. Yes, He is Lord. He has authority over everything, including the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. But He uses means, doesn't He? Means. Us. Prayer. Proclamation of the Gospel and His Word. He uses His church. He uses divine circumstances. He uses means to draw sinners to Himself within that wonderful sovereignty that is true of Him. So don't punt it off to the sovereignty of God, right? And say, well, I don't have any responsibility there because, you know, God is God predestined and He called and He's going to choose, uh, He's going to call whoever He calls or draw whoever He draws. Listen to me. You're just trying to escape your responsibility. He uses means. He's chosen to use us, brethren. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, there Paul exhorts the Corinthian Christians and he says, God has committed to us Christians, the word of reconciliation. God is a reconciling God, and He's charged us to be about the ministry of reconciliation. He's given that to us. It's a gracious gift. He could have done this all Himself, but He chose to use us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's a beautiful word right there, ambassador. Beautiful word. In the olden days, an agent or a messenger of the conquering king would be sent ahead of his army to warn that particular town or city that they were, to be, they were going to be conquered. It was inevitable. And the message was essentially this. Listen, submit to king such and such or else you're doomed. That was it. Ambassador. Paul says, Christian, that's what you are. That's what you are in this world. You are ambassador for Christ. And then he adds with what kind of heart we should plead with sinners. We don't come self-righteous. We don't come lacking compassion. 2 Corinthians 5.20 As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, the glory of God, and the good of the sinner. Sinners just like you and I were it not for the grace of God. Those are our motivations, brethren, for being ambassadors for Christ, for coming and pleading with them and begging that they would come to know uh, Christ, that they would make things right with God. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Oh, brethren, it couldn't be clearer why we are here. We have a chief ministry, and that chief ministry is to call sinners to be reconciled to the one and only God through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wondrous privilege. Amen? I hope that you feel that way. Man, 
What a privilege we have. He could have done all this himself, but this is how he designed it. We have a mandate to fulfill. Now, if you know your mandate, but you're not moved to share the hope of Christ with people, brother or sister, go back to the foot of the cross. Go back to the foot of the cross. Be reminded of what Christ did for you. In fact, be astounded. Marvel at the fact that at one time you too were lost and you were hope, hopeless in this world. That was you and I, were it not for the grace of God. And then Christ, by means of another person, another person, another messenger, another ambassador, who that person was obedient to the orders of Christ, maybe your parent, maybe a friend, maybe somebody in the church, maybe a pastor, somebody shared Christ with you. They obeyed the orders of Jesus to be an ambassador to you. They, vi- they visited you where you were, witnessed to you, perhaps not once, but repeatedly. They planted seeds and eventually the Spirit of God did a marvelous work in your heart. Boy, when I reflect and I rehearse just all of those, the names of those people, brethren, in 30 years, especially early on, before Christ, before I, I turned 17, all those people, Awana leaders and, and dear ladies and, and my Sunday school who would teach me those Sunday school lessons and, and they would encourage me to memorize Scripture and they would confront me as a little dude and I was just a rascal, okay? I really was. I know that I'm the only rascal in here, right? But I was. And boy, these people just ministered to my heart, brethren, over and over. And I look back and I, I just long to be an instrument like that in the life of somebody else. I long to be an ambassador like that. I long to see others come to know Christ. I long to be an instrument in the hands of the great reconciler and redeemer of men, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of my favorite passages reminding me of my need to obey the orders of my Lord is Romans 10.13. Romans 10, verse 13 says this, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Open, free call. But listen to this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then he goes deeper. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? A preacher. Say, well, that's Pastor Kempis or Pastor Paul or one of the elders. Uh-uh. No. Gospel proclaimers. How will they hear without someone speaking to them the truth? Gospel proclaimers. That's every single one of us. Beginning with your pastors. Because we should set the example for that. That's every single one of us. And he says, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Boy, some of you are doing that. I know it. You've responded to this this series on being a mission-focused church. You've gone to public places to pass out stuff for VBS. You've been sharing your faith. This week I was interacting with three of you. You were sharing Christ with people of other religions who think that, that Jesus is not the only way, the truth, and the life. It's amazing to see that. Praise God for you. This could be said of you. How beautiful are your feet bringing good news of Christ to others. So faith comes from hearing, he says, and hearing by the word of Christ. Not the word of Allah. Not the word of, the, the, the word of Hinduism. Not the word of Muhammad. The word of Christ, he says. Christ. 
In other words, in order for people to believe, they need to hear the gospel. And in order for him to hear the gospel, they need someone to share the gospel with them. They need an ambassador to come. That is us, brethren. This is our mandate. We are God's gospel preachers, gospel proclaimers, gospel witnesses. He could have done this all himself. He's chosen to graciously enlist us to be a part of this. Wow, what a privilege. What a privilege. I always remind myself every single day, this is not a right that I have to be doing this. It's a privilege. It's a gracious gift. Same thing for you. Same thing for you. It's a gracious gift that you've been saved and that you've been enlisted to be an ambassador for the great King of the universe. Amen? Do you know your mandate? Do you know your mandate? Do you know what you've been commanded to do? And are you following the exalted Christ's charge and orders to you? That's my question for us first and foremost this morning. Now listen, it's not just enough to know your mandate. Secondly, as you're taking notes, you must also know your message. You must also know your message. This is of supreme importance because there are many folks in our world saying that they have a a message to proclaim, but hear me, it's the wrong one. They are are promising a solution, but that solution is like band-aids for cancer. It's like a band-aid for cancer. It doesn't deal with the root cause of the problem. Wrong message. So notice in verse 6, the disciples ask a a logical question of Jesus. Verse 6, so when they had come together, that is Jesus and his disciples, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, that's a good and reasonable question. By this time, the antennas of the disciples would have been fully engaged Because according to passages like Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27 and others, the Spirit's arrival signified the Messiah's arrival. And if the Messiah is here and the Spirit is soon arriving as well, then what follows is the restoration of Israel, fulfillment of all the promises God has made to Israel, the ushering of a political kingdom, an abundant blessing upon Israel, and on and on it goes, right? Jesus says, time out. Not so fast. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, this is a very gracious, gentle way of saying, guys, the timing of the culmination of all things is none of your business. The timing of God's restoration of all things belongs only to God. Only God the Father knows that information. Jesus, as the God-man during His incarnation, He Himself did not know that information. And He had told them in Mark 13.32 that He didn't even know the exact timing, but only the Father knew that. So it's a gentle rebuke here. Leave the timing of the restoration of all things to God. Only He knows. By the way, did you notice... That Jesus does not deny that one day Israel will be restored. Did you notice that? He doesn't negate that. That one day, future, God's promises of a literal, physical kingdom on earth will be fulfilled literally. He doesn't deny this. If he ever had a time to do it, right? Big softball, right? This was the time. He doesn't do it. But what Jesus does do is that he recalibrates and refocuses their attention on the part that they play in this mission. What does he do? He calls their attention and their focus to the task at hand. What is that task? They are to be his witnesses. They are to be his witnesses. This implies a message that they are to proclaim. 
They are to be a, the, you're to be the witness of someone, right? You're proclaiming a person. There's a message here. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We saw this last week that we need to be God-dependent in this mission. But then pay attention. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus says, upon my departure and before the culmination of all things, you are to be my witnesses. Beautiful word, witnesses. It's the Greek word martyres. Martyres. We get our English word martyr or martyrdom from this particular word. And the reason for this translation is that many Christians, brethren, in the first century died for their faith. So much so that the word became almost synonymous with death. There's even an organization that I keep up with called Voice of the Martyrs. How many of you have, have accessed that? You should. Subscribe to it. Access that. Be informed, brother and sister, about what's happening in other places with our Christian brethren and the persecution and opposition that they are experiencing. The Word has the idea of testifying about someone. The Word has the idea of, of teaching and proclamation concerning a, a person, of, of advancing a person's cause in word and deed. That's the idea of witness. Martyres or martyreo. Now for Christians, it's the idea of witnessing about Jesus' person, about Jesus' life, and the implications of who He is and what He's done for every single person in this world because every single person needs to do business with Jesus. Did you hear me? Every single person. Jesus is not irrelevant for anyone. They might say that, but He is not. And one day they're going to find out the hard way if they do not bow the knee to Him. So Jesus, the Lord of the church, says it's time to get to work. Don't worry about the timing of the culmination of these things. You get on with the business of proclaiming me, of proclaiming a message of salvation and forgiveness of sins. And they did that. Now, this begs the question, do you know the message? Brother or sister, do you know the message of salvation? If I were to ask you right now, unrehearsed, to stand and boldly proclaim the essential elements of a faithful gospel message, could you do it? Could you do it? Well, you say, you know, Pastor Kempis, God can use any simple message. Amen? Preach it. I've seen it. I've heard it. I have shared a simple message early on even in my Christian walk, and the Lord used that to draw someone to Himself. Yes. But as far as it depends on us, brethren, we are called to be people who are, who are preparing ourselves to give an account for the hope that is in us, right? To proclaim an accurate gospel message so that people are not deceived and led astray from a human perspective. We're called to be people who are proclaiming an accurate gospel. So do you know the gospel message? And you say, frankly, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I know. Yep. Yes. But you know what? I know a lot of believers who cannot proclaim the gospel to somebody, who are even afraid of doing that. And that fear has never driven them to actually go get training as far as being able to proclaim the gospel. I know a lot of preachers who don't proclaim an accurate gospel message. They are leading people astray from a human perspective. There are pulpits all over our country, including in the Pacific Northwest, as I've been tuning in to various so-called preachers in the Pacific Northwest. They're not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. 
What a hopeless situation. And I feel for those people. And I hold those guys accountable for not knowing the book. So, it's not a given. So this. Let's recall what the gospel is. But first of all, let's recall what the gospel is not. You ready? This is what the gospel is not. The gospel is not moralism. The gospel is not moralism. Be a good person. Do better. Change yourself so that you come to Jesus. Change yourself so that you come to Christ. No, 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 no. There are moral implications as the fruit of a gospel-transformed life. But the gospel is not being a better person, doing better, reforming yourself so you come to Jesus. You come to Christ broken and fallen as you are, as a beggar, and He begins to change in you. You don't change yourself so that you come to Christ. You come to Jesus broken as a beggar, understanding that you are a sinner in the hands of a holy and just God and that the only way of salvation is Jesus alone and He will save you. He will begin the work of change in your life. The Gospel is not moralism. There are folks who diminish the Gospel to a a set of do's and don'ts, right? The problem is that doing better doesn't save anyone because none of us are good enough. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? We missed the mark. We shot the arrow the opposite way, not even a little bit off to the right or to the left. We're imperfect. The only one who scored a perfect 10 in full fulfillment of God's requirements is Jesus and Jesus alone. You must be imputed with His righteousness, that alien righteousness outside of yourself. Jesus' righteousness must be imputed to your account. You must be in Him for you to stand forgiven before God. The gospel is not moralism. The gospel is not social engagement or social reform. Write that down. Our focus is not reforming politics or reforming society, right? We understand more than anyone else from God's Word that if anything, the world is going downhill and going downhill fast, brethren. It's going downhill. Expect it, embrace it, engage it because of that reality. The gospel is not about ushering in some utopian society where everything is perfect and ideal as we define it, right? Listen, if you really care about society, then you will understand that only Christ, through the gospel as they embrace Him, will usher in an everlasting kingdom where one day future there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells because that's where the King, the righteous one, dwells with His people. If you really care about societal reform, look for the ultimate reform in Christ. In a new heavens and a new earth, only the gospel and an embracing of Christ leads to a long-term, sustainable, total reformation of society, if you really care. So the gospel is not social justice, social racial harmony. The gospel is not wokeness. It's not that ideology and all that comes with it, we absolutely affirm that because we are all image bearers, we are equal. Yes? No matter what ethnic background you come from, we are all part of one human race. And there's beauty in that diversity. And that beauty is to be leveraged and celebrated amongst one another. We affirm that with all of our hearts. We affirm that the, that the gospel has implications for all of this for ethnic equality, right? 
But ethnic equality is not the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, right? That the horizontal relationships that we have are, are now at peace because people from different nations and tribes come to know Christ, and you come to know Christ, and now you're one in Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 on, on horizontal reconciliation follows vertical reconciliation right, with God through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, not the other way around. And that's part of the problem in our society. I'm not going to solve this problem amongst people that shouldn't exist. It is a manifestation of corruption, racism, ethnocentrism. Wrong. It's sinful. It's a manifestation of human depravity. But we're not going to solve the root problem. We're just going to put band-aids unless we return back to our need for vertical reconciliation with God through Jesus. And then we will understand, oh, wow, if God reconciled me that way, I, I don't need to be a hater of other people. I don't need to be partial, even in my heart, towards other people who are not like me, who don't have the same skin color. And so the gospel has implications for all of this, but the gospel is not social justice, not racial harmony, not wokeness theology, if you want to put it that way. The gospel is not human development. The gospel is not human development, equipping and empowering individuals to be successful, to find self-worth, to have a good life and discover the, the American dream. The gospel is not those things. And there's people who are proclaiming that, including Joel Olstein, right? False gospel. I hope that none of you listen to Joel Olstein. And now you're not going to find me typical, find this typical, me calling guys out. But that guy's a false teacher. He's a cultist. False gospel. Stop it if you are listening to him. The gospel is not helping the poor and ending world hunger. I spent six years in that field fighting that, calling people to the Word of God who really believed that their call as Christians was to end world hunger. Are you kidding me? No. The gospel is not those things. Hear me? The gospel is not homeschooling. The gospel is not public schooling. The gospel is not charter schooling. The gospel is not a hybrid of them all. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not self-esteem, as I said. Self-fulfillment, self-actualization like our New Age ideology proponents are teaching. Those things are not the gospel. None of these things are the true gospel. None of these things, brethren, are going to heal anyone from the root. Do you understand? Hear me. And to be sure, the gospel has implications for any and all of these areas, but these things are not synonymous with the gospel content. So, what is the gospel? What is the content of the gospel message? And it is that. It's content. The gospel is God's saving message to be proclaimed, centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus, concerning fallen and hopeless humanity. Did you hear that? The gospel is God's saving message to be proclaimed, centered on the person and work of Jesus concerning fallen and hopeless humanity. Let's unpack that. It's a message to be proclaimed and shared. It's about God. It's about God, the one true God of Scripture and of the universe. A God who is holy and just. 
A God who is creator and created men to glorify Him and enjoy Him now and forevermore. A God who, because He is creator, He has all authority over His creation as the creator. He has all authority. Just as you have authority or rights over your property, over your possessions, over the things that, from a human perspective, you worked hard for, no one has a right to come in your home and tell you how to, how to do things, right? We understand that from a human perspective, but it's amazing how people don't want to apply that to God. We live in His world. We drink His water. We walk on His earth. We enjoy the beautiful nature that He has provided for us. We do all of that. We breathe His oxygen. Right now, He's the one sustaining us and keeping us alive. And what do we do? I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. We are thankless, Romans 1. We suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. We don't acknowledge Him. We don't thank Him. And yet He owns us. He owns the whole universe. So it's a message about God, but it concerns mankind. Every single person, past, present, and future. Mankind who is fallen. Mankind who is a rebel group of people. Mankind who has committed, has committed mutiny against the one true God, against our Maker. Mankind, brethren, who instead of living for God the Creator, we seek autonomy, we seek independence, we seek isolation from the God of the universe. And yet we are creatures. He can squash us at any point in time. There's no fear of God before their eyes, says Romans 1. Mankind who has sinned and thus stands guilty and condemned before God, boy, all of this tells us that this is a broken relationship between us and God and that we have a major problem, right? This is bad news right here. That's not the good news yet. We'll get, we'll get to the good news right now. But we need to set the, set the, the stage for the good news, right? So some bad news here. There's a broken relationship that exists between those who are not in Jesus and the one true God, their creator. This is bad news. And if this is where things ended, there would be no hope for us. None. We would be, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and following, having no hope and without God in the world, if that were the case. But brethren, there is good news, isn't there? And that's what gospel means, good news. And that good news centers on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the pearl of the gospel. Jesus is the hope for humanity. Jesus is the good news for sinners. But we need to understand who he is if he qualifies to be redeemer. Who he is qualifies him to do what he did. And by virtue of who he is, he alone is savior and redeemer. Who is he? He's the God-man. Amen? He's the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Scripture thunderously, thunderously establishes that. By virtue of what Jesus said, what others said about him, his works pointed, they were attesting miracles, miracles that pointed to his person, who he is as God, that he is deity. Yes, you must affirm that Jesus is God fully to be saved. You cannot be saved if consciously you reject the doctrine of the deity of Christ. What? what? That's hardcore. Just look at the Bible and the things that we're about to point out right now. You must affirm, even if you don't understand and slice and dice all the intricacies of that because some of these things are mystery, right? Because He is God and we are not. We understand that. But you must affirm what Scripture affirms, that Jesus is God. Yes, the deity of Christ matters. 
Because who he is qualifies him alone, brethren, to be Savior. Listen, only one who is infinitely and eternally God qualifies alone to pay and die for eternal sins and an array, myriads, myriads of sinners. Only one who is eternal God qualifies to pay for sins like that sufficiently. That he is God qualifies him to be unrivaled Savior. Thus, Jesus exclusively is Redeemer. Did you hear that? Don't drink the Kool-Aid of our culture. Well, he's just one way. No, he isn't. He's exclusively the only way, the truth, and the life. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Ready? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We believe and we affirm the exclusivity of the person and the work of Jesus. Scripture does. Jesus says in John 14, 6. Ready? I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. That is an emphatic construction in the Greek, by the way. The sense is this, I myself am. I myself am. Emphatic construction. So that there's no doubt concerning the exclusivity of Christ as the only way. And then, if you're still confused, he uses the definite article, the word the, in our English translations, three different times as to, to highlight the identity that is Jesus, the singling out of Jesus. I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. And then if you're still confused, he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. You think it's debatable? No, it's not debatable. It's not because we're arrogant or proud. It's because the Bible affirms it. This is God's authoritative word speaking concerning His Son. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Jesus is the only door into the fold of God. He's the living water. He alone refreshes our soul. Amen? He's the living water. He's the door of the sheep. He's the bread of life. You partake of Jesus and you will never thirst again. You partake of the bread of life and you will never hunger again. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the only one who comes into our dark world or has come into our dark world and tells us about the truth, how things really are. That's what truth means. How are things really? He tells us about reality. He's the light of the world, brethren, in the midst of a dark world. He's fully God. He's fully God. You must affirm that. But he's also fully man, right? He's also fully man. This also qualifies him alone to be the redeemer of mankind because as man, listen to me, he lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I should live, but we cannot live. And then he went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins. But he did it as the blameless, spotless sacrifice. No one can claim that. You say, well, I don't know about that, Pastor Kempis. You know, there are a lot of people back in the day, many, many people from the Persian times, right? Medo-Persian times or Phoenicians even, who died on the cross. There were many people. How could this guy? Well, they weren't God. Furthermore, they might have claimed to be God, but they couldn't prove it. Jesus proved it, didn't he? And they didn't live a sinless, blameless, perfect life, did they? No, only Jesus did that. So he's unique in that. Mark it, because of his sinless life, he alone qualified to suffer and die for sinners on the cross. He is the great sin bearer. 
He is the great wrath absorber. He is the propitiation for our sins. That, re- that means the, the wrath-removing sacrifice sufficiently. Jesus is that, the propitiation, the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. Only he qualifies to be able to do that. Yes, we believe and affirm the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he died in our place, paying for our sins on the cross, and, and personalize that. We died for the sins of the world. He died for you if you trusted in him. And if you are here without Christ, listen to me, he can do the same for you. Put your confident trust in him. Turn from your sins. Now, it doesn't end there. Three days later, what did he do? He rose bodily, physically, visibly from the dead. Amen? As the God-man. Yes, the resurrection matters because the resurrection was God's validation and vindication of Jesus that his claims concerning himself, including the fact that he is God, were absolutely and unequivocally true, brethren. By virtue of his resurrection, Jesus was validated, was vindicated. His statements were true concerning himself. If his works weren't enough, the resurrection matters because through the resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death. The two great tyrants and enemies of man, sin and death. We cannot overcome those things on our own, brethren. We cannot. Jesus rose and he's now ascended and exalted at the right hand of God. We love and follow a risen king. Amen? He's a risen king. He lives to intercede for our sins. And because he lives one glorious day future, he's returning to judge the living and the dead. He's returning, brethren, to establish an eternal, everlasting kingdom on earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering because there will be no more sin. Amen? Boy, I can't wait. I can't wait. And so you see, when it's all said and done, it's the Christian worldview that universally and comprehensively addresses all the great problems of our world, our personal sin and the world's sin as well. We know what the problem is, right? As believers. And we have the solution, brethren. Not in a proud, arrogant way. We just do. For the glory of God and the good of people, including ourselves. Christ, then, is the great pearl of the gospel. He's good news for sinners. Listen to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, which says that the kingdom of heaven is like a a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. In other words, when you find Christ, you give it all up. Jesus is worth more than anything that this world has to offer. And the heart of the person who comes to know Jesus is that now you hate your sin, and you treasure and you savor the Savior, you see. And then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl, one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that pearl. Christ is the great treasure. Christ is the great pearl of the gospel. If you have Christ, you have it all. So Christ is the good news. Christ is the good news. And how you respond to God's love in Christ determines where you will spend eternity. Do you understand that? There are consequences. There are consequences for rejecting Christ. There's no neutral. You either embrace him or you reject him. There's no neutral. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus plus my works. It's not Jesus plus my other God, my other ideology. It's Jesus exclusively, and if you reject that, then there are consequences for that. Listen. Please listen. 
God now commands each of His creatures in the light of this good news to repent from their sins and believe in His beloved Son. God now commands you as His creature to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge your guilt, to acknowledge that you deserve hell and condemnation apart from Jesus. To recognize that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. God commands you to acknowledge that and to bow the knee to His Son as Lord and Savior. He commands you. He orders you. The call of the Gospel, contrary to the way that many preach it and share it, is not a, you know, if you really want to, Follow after Jesus if, 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 if you feel right about it, you know? I mean, He's waiting for you to open the door of your heart. I understand why we sometimes have used that terminology. And frankly, brethren, early on, I did the same thing. I don't want to be self-righteously judgmental, but we got to be careful. we got to be careful. It's almost as if Jesus is waiting for us. As if Jesus is subjected to us. He's boss. Bosses don't subject themselves to their employees, Right? He's the ultimate boss and He's loving and good and righteous and He desires your best. He does, but not at the expense of the glory of His Father. That's why He went to the cross. He calls you to, instead of trusting in your own means, that you place your heartfelt, confident trust in Him and Him alone. He alone is able to save you. He alone is able to redeem you. The Bible says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from God's coming judgment. The Bible says that if you put your confident trust in Christ, it can be said of you what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Like a sweet lollipop, right? What a sweet lollipop. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent if you haven't. Repent and put your confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, brethren. It's God's saving message to be proclaimed, centered on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning fallen and hopeless humanity, and that applies to everyone in this room and everyone that you know, and therefore we need to be about mission, proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Do you know this message? Do you know this message? And if you know it, are you sharing it? Are you proclaiming it? Brethren, Jesus' heartbeat is for his Father's kingdom. And listen, like a heart monitor is to mirror the heartbeat of a person, so the church is to mirror the heartbeat of Jesus, right? We are to be about his Father's kingdom. I've often thought about this, just contemplating my own role in this as a follower of Jesus. And I've thought, you know, if, if I were to discover... And let me personalize it to you. If you were to discover the healing medicine for the most devastating disease, what would you do with it? What would you do with it? Would you conceal it? Would you keep it to yourself? Even during COVID, everybody was trying to figure out how to solve the problem. Remember that? How hateful it would have been and how hateful in some ways it was that some were actually trying to conceal some of the potential solution. So if you had that, what would you do with it? Wouldn't it be the most hateful act to withhold that medicine or antidote for the worst of diseases for mankind? Listen, we do have the medicine for the most devastating disease 
known to mankind. It is sin at the root level that leads to ultimate eternal death and damnation and separation from our Creator. Do you see that? Everything else flows from that. Everything else is putting band-aids on things. The gospel deals with the root issue. We have an unstoppable message, brethren. One powerful to save sinners such as us, but some of us are, are hoarding it. We're not sharing it. We're not building relationships with people for the purpose, the intentional purpose of sharing Christ, of witnessing concerning Christ. We need to be like the early church, resolved upon our mission, right? Even in the face of persecution and opposition, they did that. They were focused on their mission of making disciples fully dependent upon the Spirit of God, proclaiming an accurate person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they understand? They knew their mandate. They lived in the power of the Spirit. They knew their mandate and they knew their message, right? We must as well, brethren, if we're going to be effective and faithful. Amen? As our brother comes up to lead us in the closing song, let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we are humbled by the great reality that, Lord, we are here because of your Son. We are here because of your redemptive plan in and through Him. Father, we don't deserve this. We are sinners saved by grace. That's unmerited, undeserved favor toward us in Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that we would, Lord, be all the more awakened individually as families, as a church to the great urgency and joy that it is to bring Christ to bear upon everything in our life and in the lives of others in a gracious and loving manner. Father, help us to do that by your grace and in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.